Hello, finally, and welcome to the Litany of Saints podcast coming to you from the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph in Northwest Missouri. I'm your host, Alex, and I'd like to apologize real quick. On the Facebook page uh, several weeks ago, I said there would be two episodes that week. One on the news of the week and another on what makes us Catholic. Uh, I decided a couple weeks ago to combine them. Um, so this episode will both do news from a couple weeks ago and what makes us Catholic part one. Uh, I, life kind of happened um, in between that. So this uh, some of the news here is a little dated, but I'm not rewriting the script. This is still news. I mean, it's not going to be anything here that's going to be outdated. It's just probably you've heard it all before. Um, so maybe you have, maybe you haven't. It's here. I had to script right now. So, before we get moving into what makes us Catholic, I'll do the news mm-hmm. first. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has responded to criticisms of his letter on the abuse crisis and the church. For those who are not aware, the former pontiff released a letter in April discussing the sexual revolution, a breakdown of moral theology in the 1960s, and how the church needs to respond with love and obedience for Jesus Christ. He says that apostasy and alienation of the faith are the key issues driving the abuse crisis. Well, is he wrong? Well, some Germans definitely disagree. However, as Pope Benedict says, his harshest critics, which are so-called theologians and historians, miss the point. One German professor wrote a four-page response to the Pope about this and that. But even though Benedict's letter is about apostasy, the word God is not mentioned a single time in the professor's response. This, the former Pope says, shows the seriousness of the situation, where even in matters of theology, the word God is marginalized. In other news, out of Australia, the sham of a trial of the decade concludes with the Court of Appeals in the state of Victoria upholding the conviction of Cardinal George Pell in a two-to-one decision. The Cardinal and many Catholics all over the world, maintain his innocence. He will be serving six years in prison, but would be eligible for parole in November 2022. This is an issue I'm going to go more into on a later episode. So I won't spend too much time talking about this, but Cardinal Pell and the people of Australia need our prayers. Um, And the reason... I call this a sham of a trial, and the reason why so many people are against it. Look, there is definitely an abuse problem in the church today. Um, There are a lot of wolves in shepherds clothing running the show today. Uh, Cardinal Pell, many of us believe, is not one of them. Um, It was a, a very shady accusation that the evidence really isn't there. And like I said, I'll go into this more in a, in a, in a later episode, probably, but uh, let's say that there's just the the layout of the cathedral and the accusation is wrong. Like, events are happening in places that are supposedly closed off rooms, but in reality are in full view of everything. Um, so, the evidence just isn't there. It doesn't line up with reality. Um, it's very shady, and it really feels like the the courts are using Cardinal Pell as a uh, kind of a, a scapegoat for the crimes of 
the rest of the clergy as if they're they're putting the church on trial not not so much the cardinal um so like i said i hope to go into more of that later but that's that's why i can take such a strong stance on this because it just it doesn't add up with reality like i keep saying and i i don't know it's definitely something messed up there so prayers for the cardinal and the people of Australia and their foolish government. Um, finally in the news, one year after the bombshell Pennsylvania grand jury report that told of 70 years worth of cover-ups in the state, attorneys general in 20 states and D.C. are conducting investigations. Um, this is another one of those it-deserves-its-own-episode kind of topics, but if you live in Washington, D.C., New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Missouri, Virginia, Vermont, Florida, New Mexico, New York, Delaware, California, Kansas, Indiana, Colorado, Georgia, Nebraska, West Virginia, Illinois, Michigan, and Iowa, then this could affect your diocese. In addition, the Attorney General of Pennsylvania suspects as many as 45 states could be working on similar investigations behind the scenes. Of note here, 22 plaintiffs filed a lawsuit against the Diocese of Buffalo, New York, a province of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, multiple priests, eight parishes, three high schools, and a seminary, among others, alleging a, quote, pattern of racketeering activity that led to cover-ups of clerical sexual abuse. Federal laws, more commonly known as RICO statutes, used to take down things like the Mafia and other organized crime groups, are being invoked to fight this rot within our church. How fitting, because the people responsible for this are referred to many of us as the Lavender Mafia. And that's all the news for now. Like I said, a few of those deserve their own episodes, and they're all kind of older news because of the nature of life getting in the way of the podcast um but i hope to expand on these further and i hope to provide more relevant news in the future now to what i consider to be the real meat of this episode which i'm calling what makes us catholic part one i'm sticking with my back to basics theme from the last episode even though like seven people bothered listening to it because, well, yeah, everyone ought to know Romans 3.23 and John 3.16 and what that means for them. It's common knowledge for the most part, and common knowledge doesn't excite people. But what isn't common knowledge, and even something my Protestant listeners have requested, is what do Catholics believe? What goes beyond the back to basics? What goes beyond Romans 3.23 and John 3.16 that Catholics believe? You know, a lot of Catholics don't even know. They don't know how to answer that question. And a few of my Protestant friends and listeners want to know the answers. What makes us different from the guys across the street playing really poor guitar music? Well, that's the aim of this episode. To go over some of those details. Who knows? Maybe you're a cradle Catholic. Who knows what the church teaches. But you don't understand what the big deal is. You might learn something too. Now... I'm going to try my best to keep this accessible. I'm no theologian, after all, and I will not pretend to be. So I'm going to be trying to present this information in an easy-to-grasp, easy-to-explain manner. <laughs> but when I, when I wrote the script, <laughs> when I wrote this part, I wasn't planning on uh, um, quoting 
someone who actually does know his stuff. So there'll be a little bit here that might require paying attention, but I did my best to keep it in an easy to explain manner. What I'll be covering in part one in this episode is apostolic succession and the Eucharist, which I think are the two big things you need to start off with when you're talking to people who are unfamiliar with Catholicism or with ordinary people who have been going to church their whole life but they don't really know you know they need like a refresher for the basics they're not sure how to explain what it is they're they're about when they go to church so the big two apostolic succession and the Eucharist now even though the Eucharist is the biggest deal when discussing this when discussing differences between Catholics and Protestants, your average Protestant isn't going to want to hear about the Eucharist right away. That's kind of a bigger a bigger pill for them to swallow. Um, what you want to do instead is appeal to authority instead. People, people tend to listen to that a bit more, especially Protestants, because um, your average Protestant likes to learn about how the early Christians did things. That's something you always hear about, especially when you go into a non-denominational church. They talk about how the early Christians did things. Um, and, of course, obviously, the early Christians had the Eucharist, um, but it's, it's easier to talk about apostolic succession. Um, so, what is it? What is apostolic succession? Well, all the way back to the Last Supper which is an event we'll be hearing about again soon, probably several times. Jesus made his disciples bishops when he gave them the fullness of the priesthood. Now, we call these gentlemen the apostles. And like all people, the apostles die. And they might be dead, but the church still needs leaders. Luckily, the apostles at this point had already appointed bishops which we call bishops, either to replace them or to lead in areas the faith had begun to spread to. And these bishops appointed bishops to replace them or spread the church. And those bishops appointed bishops. And those bishops appointed bishops. And those bishops appointed bishops. And an unbroken line all the way to today. And the Catholic Church... The bishops are holding offices and or orders handed down to them for millennia, all the way back to the original disciples. We call this apostolic succession. Now that you know what that means, you know why that's a big deal. Our leaders go back in unbroken lines to the original leaders. Who else can say that besides the Eastern Orthodox? Um, but we'll have, we have fun here in the Orthodox Dome, so who else can say that? Going back to the Last Supper, we see when Jesus Christ gives us the Eucharist. Or to the non-Catholics, and some Catholics, communion. You see, for us, when Jesus says things like, This is my body, and this is my blood, he meant it. This isn't a symbol or a metaphor or something like that. When we receive the Eucharist, we are receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pause for a second so our Protestant friends can get their jaws off the floor. But yes, Catholics, when taking communion, are literally, unironically, 
consuming the body and blood of the Savior. So, how do we back that up? Well, first, and easiest, the early Christians, you always hear your non-denominational friends go on about, believed that. They believed in consuming the literal body and blood of the Savior. The Desert Fathers, the guys responsible for spreading Christianity and writing all about the scripture and all that good stuff. Um, you know, people who wrote a lot about getting people to understand and know the scripture and understand it. Uh, they, they believed it. And those people appointed people, and they appointed people. And, oh, hey, look, it's apostolic succession again. And those guys all believed it. Next, because the Protestants don't like anything that isn't in the Bible for some reason, John 6, 53, Jesus' words could hardly have been clearer. In verse 51, he plainly claims to be the living bread that his followers must eat. And he says in no uncertain terms that the bread which I shall give is my flesh. Then, when the Jews were found disputing among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat. In verse 52, he reiterates even more empathetically, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. In John 6, 50-53, we encounter various forms of the Greek verb phago, eating. However, after the Jews begin to express their dismay at the idea of eating Christ's flesh, the language begins to intensify. Um, oh, I bought well, here. I'm quoting some website. Um, I guess when I wrote this at like three, three in the morning, I couldn't be bothered the the site where I got it from. But uh, I'm I'm quoting. I think it's Catholic Answers. I think so. You can go find it on there for yourself. But uh, yeah, I really wish I would have credited where I got it from because that's a bad form not to credit your sources. Um, however, when the Jews begin to express the dismay at the idea of eating Christ's flesh, the language begins to intensify. In verse 54, John 6, 54, John begins to use trogo instead of phago. Trogo is a decidedly more graphic term, meaning to chew on or to gnaw on, as when an animal is ripping apart its prey. Jesus is telling us to gnaw on his flesh. Finally, our Lord turns to the disciples. What he does not say to them is perhaps more important than what he does say. He doesn't say, hey guys, I was misleading the Jewish multitudes and the disciples and everyone else, but now I'm going to tell you alone the simple truth. I was being symbolic. Rather, he says to them, will you also go away? Verse 67. This most profound question from our Lord echoes down through the centuries, calling all followers of Christ in a similar fashion. With St. Peter, those who hear the voice of the shepherd respond, Lord, to whom shall I we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's verse 68. Now, like I said, that's probably Catholic answers I was quoting there. Um, I really wish I could have <laughs> wrote down the source for you because I just, I'm not that kind of guy. I don't like taking credit for other people's stuff. But it was worded in such a great way, there was really no way for me to 
to write that down in an easier to understand way. I mean that why is Reggie with the Greek Greek words phago and trogo, if that's how you pronounce them, I don't, I don't speak Greek. But if that's how you pronounce it then all the better. But all that stuff. Beautifully explained. Short and simple. And that's why I took it. I'm pretty sure it's Catholic Answers. You can find it anywhere out there, so if you find it, don't say, Alex, you stole that. I'm telling you now, I stole it, okay? Tomorrow from Tim Staples, simply because I can't be writing scripts at 3 a.m. all the time, he addresses some Protestant rebuttals. And John 6.63, um, there's one verse singled out by Protestant apologists to counter much of what we have asserted thus far. After seeing the Jews and the disciples struggling with the radical nature of his words, our Lord says to the disciples and to us all, quote, It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Protestants claim Jesus here lets us know that he was speaking symbolically or spiritually when he said, The spirit gives life. The flesh is no avail. See, he's not giving us his flesh to eat because he says the flesh is of no avail. How do we respond? We respond in several ways. If Jesus was clearing up the point, he would have to be considered a poor teacher. Many of the disciples left him immediately because they still believed the words of our Lord to mean what they said. Most importantly, Jesus also did not say, My flesh is of no avail. He said, The flesh is of no avail. There is a rather large difference between the two. No one, it is safe to say, would have believed he meant my flesh avails nothing because he just spent a good portion of the same discourse telling us that his flesh would be given for the life of the world. That's John 6.51. So what was he referring? The flesh is a New Testament term often used to describe human nature apart from God's grace. Three, on another level, very closely related to our last point, Christ said, It is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no avail, because he wills to eliminate any possibility of a sort of crass literalism that would reduce his words to a cannibalistic understanding. It is the Holy Spirit that will accomplish the miracle of Christ being able to ascend into heavenly body while being able simultaneously to distribute his body and blood in the Eucharist for the life of the world. A human body, even a perfect one, apart from the power of the Spirit, could not accomplish this. Fourth, that which is spiritual does not necessarily equate to that which has no material substance. It often means that which is dominated or controlled by the Spirit. One thing we do not want to do as Christians is to fall into the trap of believing that because Christ says his words are spirit and life, or spiritual, that they cannot involve the material. When speaking of the resurrection of the body, Paul wrote, quote, It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. That's 1 Corinthians 15.44. Does this mean we will not have a physical body in the resurrection? Of course not. In Luke 24.39, Jesus made that clear after his own resurrection. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see that I have. 
the resurrected body is spiritual, and indeed, we can be called spiritual as Christians, inasmuch as we are controlled by the Spirit of God. Spiritual in no way means void of the material. That interpretation is more Gnostic than Christian. The confusion here is most often based upon confusion between spirit, a noun, and the adjective spiritual. When spirit is used, such as God is spirit, in John 4.24, it is then referring to that which is not material. However, the adjective spiritual is not necessarily referring to the absence of the material, rather it is referring to the material controlled by the spirit. Thus, we can conclude that Jesus' words, quote, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no avail, have essentially a twofold meaning. Only the spirit can accomplish the miracle of the Eucharist, and only the spirit can empower us to believe in that miracle. So, that's the Eucharist. A priest takes some bread and a chalice of wine, and once the words of consecration are spoken, the Holy Spirit accomplishes the miracle, and it becomes the body and blood of Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. That single thing, the Eucharist, what I just described to you, is the greatest, the greatest belief. Sorry, it's, it's late. It's past my bedtime. It's the greatest belief to set Catholics apart from non-Catholics. Period. You ask me what makes me a Catholic, and I'm going to tell you about the Eucharist. Probably not as well as Tim Staples did, but I'm going to tell you anyway. So that's apostolic succession, the idea that that our bishops were appointed by bishops, were appointed by bishops, all the way back to the original bishops, the disciples of Christ. And that they've passed down their, their teachings and their authority to each other. And then we've also talked about the Eucharist, the, the bread and wine being made the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those two things are the most important things to talk about when we talk about what makes us Catholic. And so that's why I wanted to talk about them today. Next time on What Makes Us Catholic Part 2, I'll go over confession and vocations. If you like the podcast, I would really appreciate you sharing this with people who you think you would like who you think would like to hear. I'd also appreciate feedback. Contact me on Facebook, my personal profile if you have it, or the Litany of Saints podcast Facebook page. Leave some feedback. Tell me what you want to hear, or just say hello. I'll say hello back, I promise. Now before I go, I'll ask you a question. And I'm hoping to get some answers. So, my question is, how do you pray before bed? Do you pray before bed? You should, so how do you go about it? I look forward to hearing about your prayer routines. And I, I wrote in the script that I'll answer, I'll answer it myself next time, but, you know, I think it's kind of bad form to leave you hanging like that. So, here's how I pray before bed. Um, so, when I was a, when I was a Baptist, um, growing up Baptist, um... I was really taught about this way to pray that I really like. Um, so you remember the word acts. A-C-T-S. Um, A stood for... Um, 
I believe it stood for apology. <laughs> it's it's late. It's past my bedtime, so I'm getting I'm getting uh. Let's see if I can find it around here. But I, I believe it stands for apology. I'm pretty sure it's uh. No, it's adoration. It's adoration. That's what it is. You start off the prayer, and you just adore God. You just uh. Basically, you 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 attempt to flatter him. You talk about how great he is. Um. And it's a reminder for yourself who exactly you're talking to. So A is for adoration. Then you move to the C, which is confession. And you talk about all the sin that you did that day. It's like, I know I messed up. Here's what I did. Here's what, you know, I could improve on. You know, and this isn't in any way like a, a, a replacement for the sacrament of uh, confession. This is just uh, you going over it with yourself and with God before bed every night. Hey, you know, I I messed up. So first you talk about, you adore God, you talk about how great he is, you remind yourself who it is you're talking to. And you say, I'm talking to God, but like, do you actually get it? Do you get who God is? So you remind yourself, you know, the king of heaven and earth, the, the, the savior of the world, the whatever you want to do, that's you're, you remind yourself who you're addressing, and then you go to confession. You're talking about everything you've screwed up that day. Then the T stands for thanksgiving. You're thanking God for all the, the graces, all the things that are going right in your life, and if you're that kind of person, maybe thank Him for the things that are going wrong, because they're making you better, and they're, they're driving you forward on your journey. So you're, think, you're giving thanks. And then the S is a uh, supplication, I believe, or supplementation, or I don't know. I'm not a not a well-spoken guy sometimes. Not this early in the morning, but basically, there you're you're asking for stuff. So you've already like you've said, hey, you know, you're really great. I love you. I screwed up. I'm sorry. Thank you for everything you've done for me. And then you end it with like, you know, I really need this. I need your help here. And I need your help here. And for me, um, when I'm doing that, I'm asking for help with the things that I confessed earlier in the same prayer. Um, and I'm also praying for people that have asked me to pray for them, or people that I know that need prayers. And that's how I try to. That's how I try to do my prayers. Now, of course, I also have, you know, your your Our Fathers and your Hail Marys before bed. But the the meat and potatoes of my bedtime prayer routine. I actually got from being Protestant, um, and that's, you remember, A-C-T-S, Acts, um, and that's, that's my prayer routine, so, remember, I'd like to, I'd like to hear your answers, how do you pray before bed, and if you don't, then I hope you do, it's a really good, good practice to have, it, it, it will improve your life, I promise you, so, um, like I said, next time we will be doing What Makes Us Catholic Part 2. We'll be going over confession and vocations. And mind you, the confession that we're talking about next time is completely different than the talking to God every night about what you did wrong. This will be the sacrament of confession. This has been the Litany of Saints podcast. Thanks for listening.